Today we're in Isaiah 42, and the question that I would ask you in light of where we were last week in our text is this, how did waiting for the Lord go for you this week? You've had a number of days since our last time in the Word, if you were with us last Sunday. For those of you who weren't, we're making our way through the book of Isaiah, and we found a great nugget of truth in Isaiah 41.10, where the Bible makes promises over God's people. The promise sounds like this, fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. One of the things that I love is when you as a congregation find creative ways to apply the truth of God's word. I received a couple pictures this week of some ways that some folks found to apply the truth. I'm taking Isaiah 41. This is a calendar reminder that a brother put up on his phone. Or his, uh, it's not a phone, that's an Apple watch. I know the difference, just to be clear. <laughs> and here's one of our elders who... Um, wrote it what I thought was on his bathroom mirror, only to find out, and this was special, this is the bathroom mirror of his children's bathroom. Dads, take note. That's awesome. Applying biblical truth and getting it into the lives and hearts of your kids as they get ready in the morning. Praise God for that. So let me encourage you to make waiting for the Lord a regular part of your spiritual practice, especially if you find yourself struggling with fear and anxiety. Carve out just five to 15 minutes a day where you simply sit quietly before the Lord, rehearse the promises of Isaiah 41.10, and thank God for his provision. Thank him for those promises. You know, as you do this, it will not only sort of quiet that anxious heart, but if you're a Christian, it should stun you how the desires of your heart have been transformed. What I mean is this, it is a miracle that any human being would wait for the Lord. It's a miracle. Because first, waiting is not our natural instinct. Our human instinct is do it, solve it, fix it, control it, grab it, understand it, manipulate it, whatever I have to do, but don't wait for it. To wait for it is completely counterintuitive to our instinct because not waiting is an expression of our self-sufficiency. The second reason why it's a miracle is because if we do wait for something, often it's the wrong thing. We long and desire things. We wait for them in order to give us control, the things that make us feel safe or to fulfill us. In other words, we often wait for what the Bible calls idols. Ray Ortland in his commentary on Isaiah says this, the greatest miracle in the universe is not when God hung the planets in space, the greatest miracle in the universe is when God transforms a compulsive idolater into a glad worshiper of himself alone. Wow. When you wait, Christian, you worship. And it should create within you a sense of wonder 
For those of you who are in a season right now of waiting, can I just remind you that where you are, that position of not being in control of your life, that position of sorrow or difficulty or not feeling like you can provide everything that you want in order to feel the way that you want to feel, the fact that you could wait for the Lord is a grace. In Isaiah 42, we find the word wait again. This time it's Isaiah 42, four, which says, he will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. This text tells us that the entire world is waiting, but not waiting for the Lord. In this context, they are waiting for his law. What's going on here? Well, what I wanna show you today is how Isaiah 42 continues the theme of Isaiah 40 and 41, showing us what we really need, showing us who has the power to do it, and third, showing us what we're like. It's an amazing picture of what we need. It's an amazing picture of the power that God has to do it, and it's a sobering picture of what we're like. The question underneath this text is what, or maybe better, who are you waiting for? If you're here today and not yet a Christian, you've heard unbelievable stories of people, how their lives have been transformed, and I hope that based upon their testimonies and what you're gonna hear in the Bible today, that you'll be compelled to ask some really important questions about what really motivates you. How do you take care of your sin? How do you deal with the God-sized hole in your heart that is there? So what do we need? Who has the power? And what are we like? First, what do we need? In the first section of Isaiah 42, we see what God's desire and his plan look like for his people. We find that there's a reference to someone called the servant. And what we're gonna find is that God's plan is connected to this servant. For those of you who are with us through our study of Isaiah, you may remember Isaiah chapter six where the prophet Isaiah receives his call to ministry when he sees the Lord sitting upon a throne. Remember that the seraphim that flew around the throne said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The point of that text was not just the calling of Isaiah. The point of that text was also the plan of God. That the plan of God is to exalt his holiness so that the whole world would be full of his glory. That's the plan of God. He wants to extend his glory, his forgiveness, his grace, his love, and his mercy to any who would come to him. And the whole purpose of the people of Israel was to be a spotlight that shone that light to the world, to invite the nations to come, to understand who their God is. Israel was to be a witness. Israel was to be a shining light, but instead they were guilty of disobedience. They were guilty of idolatry. And last week it sounded like this in Isaiah 41 and verse 24, which says, behold, you are nothing and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. In other words, part of the problem in Isaiah is the failure of God's people. Waiting for the wrong things 
and trusting in idols led to the exile of the people of God. And Isaiah 42 is an invitation to consider the vision of God. What is God up to? And what do we really need? So in verse one, we're introduced to someone with a grand announcement. We see the word, behold. Behold my servant. Verses one through nine provide a lot of detail as to what the servant is like and what he does. And it won't surprise those of you who know your Bible, particularly the New Testament, that the fulfillment of this image in verses one through nine is none other than the person of Jesus. There's a lot to see here. Look at verse one, behold my servant whom I uphold. The word there means to grip fast. It's not just that he's being sustained, but he's being sustained for the purpose of a mission. So to grip fast or to upheld is not just to provide what is needed, it is to launch. He describes him here as my chosen, in whom my soul delights. The servant is a delight to the heart of God. And what's more, it says, I have put my spirit upon him. He's filled with divine empowerment. Now, for those of you who know your New Testament, particularly Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when you see the combination of my soul delights, my spirit is upon him, you have to think of a moment in the life of Jesus. At his baptism, when Jesus identifies with humanity as John the Baptist baptizes him, in that moment, a voice comes from heaven where the Father says, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit descends upon him and Jesus is launched into ministry. It's the fulfillment of the model that we see here in Isaiah 42. Now notice what he will bring. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring justice to the nations. This is an important theme, this word justice. In fact, it's used three times in verses one through four. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Verse four, he will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth. Verse three, he will faithfully bring forth justice. This is an important word, especially with all of the things and controversies related to that word in our culture today. Let me help you understand what this means. At a basic level, this word, biblical justice, is connected to what is right and what is true. It's used 30 times in Psalm 119 and 20 times in the book of Deuteronomy, this Hebrew word, for the law of God. So biblical justice is connected to the law of God. Why? Because the law of God is connected to the character of God. So true biblical justice is connected to the very heart and the character of God. God defines and regulates what is true and right. So true justice is that which, that which fits with God's character and God's word. But the word has even more meaning because Exodus 26 and verse 40 uses the same word for the plan of God in the construction of the tabernacle. 
So at one level, the word means right and true, but at another, it means a plan according to divine design. So Ray Ortland, in his commentary on this text, says that the word means more than just legal correctness. This is really important. It indicates a blueprint for human existence. How are we to relate to one another? So biblical justice then is simply a society or a people living in a way that fits with the heart and purpose of God. Or in other words, to simplify it, it means loving God and loving my neighbor as myself. So the book of Isaiah then in total helps us with this concept of justice in two ways. First, it shows us that perfect justice, ultimate justice, final justice, is something that can only be brought by this Messiah. So in one respect, we're always going to have to look towards the future for ultimate biblical justice. No matter how long we live or how good the system is or how much we love one another, it will always be pregnant with the brokenness of our humanity and we need someone to come back and remove all that's wrong with our society and ourselves, remove sin once and for all and when King Jesus sits on his throne, there will be no injustice in the world, hard stop. But it also means that on the ground, the people in Isaiah's day were being rebuked because while they looked forward in the future, they were being rebuked because they weren't loving people around them. It's the essence of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 1.17, this is how the book began. Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. So Isaiah helps us by doing two things. One, looking for a future kingdom, not thinking that all, everything related to biblical justice is just here and now, but at the same time, having Christians who legitimately pray, Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And church, what this does is helps us to stay out of two ditches. And the one ditch is to think that biblical justice is all up to us. The other ditch is to think it's all up to him. The one ditch is to embrace a secular social justice mindset. The other ditch is to embrace a spiritualized disregard for justice. Remember that the parable of the Good Samaritan involved the passing by of a wounded man by the most spiritual people in the culture. And so there's ditches on one side secular social justice, there's also ditch on the other side of a spiritualized disregard for loving one's neighbor. You can find all kinds of reasons to spiritualize why you don't love your neighbors. And what Isaiah is trying to do is to cut through that and to remind people that they need a king, a king who's going to come and a king who's gonna help them know how to live now. Look at verse two. He will not cry aloud or lift his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. So this not only helps us understand what the ultimate goal of King Jesus is, 
of making everything right, but this also tells us how he goes about doing it. Verses two through four help us to see the demeanor of this servant, and this is really important, especially with all of the needed attention being given to abuse and to spiritual abuse. According to Alec Moitier, the commentator on this text, he says that this servant is not seeking to startle, to dominate, to shout others down. Instead, he's a person who's tender with the bruised reed, and he's helpful to the faintly burning wick. In other words, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus describes himself as gentle and lowly in heart. And because of that, he's unrelenting. Verse four tells us he doesn't grow faint or discouraged. The thing is is that while the whole creation is waiting for what we need, while the whole creation grieves under the weight of sin, the servant of the Lord Jesus is not wearing out. He's not anxious about the plan of God. And what this text tells us is that this is the kind of leader that we need. If you lived in Isaiah's day, you could only look forward to this, but for those of us who now live on the other side of the cross, and for those of us who are Christians, we can look back and see how grateful we can be because of who Jesus is. Jesus offers this to the weary-hearted. He says, come to me, come to me, come to me. All who are heavy, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lonely, lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, I am what you need. So if you've come to church today or you're watching this sermon and you feel broken, you need to know Jesus is whole. If you come to church today and you feel weary, you need to know Jesus possesses all the strength you could possibly imagine. If you come today conflicted and confused, you have a savior who knows everything that's going on and nothing is out of his control. If you've come today facing some level of hardship or difficulty or unfairness, you need to know that Jesus knows more about that situation than you do, and he's the one that one day will make all things right. So the point of this text over and over and over and over is Jesus is what we really need. Jesus is the one who is gonna help us. And who do we really need? According to Isaiah, we need a servant who will come and help us. And by God's grace, he already did. So then the question is, secondly then, who will do it? Who will do it? Once again, we find that Isaiah grounds our hope here in the bedrock of God's character and his power. Beginning in verse five, we see he describes who he is. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread them out throughout the earth, and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I take you by the hand and keep you. I give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. About 10 years ago, or more actually, we as a church studied the book of Job. 
And in the context of that book, I made a spontaneous statement that has stuck and I think been helpful to me and to a number of you. And it was this statement, that the who question is far more satisfying than the why question. But as we're making our way through Isaiah, and as I think about issues like fear and anxiety, which are a big theme throughout the book of Isaiah, I think we could also say that the who question is also more comforting than the when, the what, and the how questions. (laughs) Who isn't just better than why, who is better than what, when, and how. So I've changed how I even see this particular text. You can't see it all that well on the screen, so let me emphasize a few words. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So the point is not just what's going on in your life, but the point is who are you trusting in? Verses five through 17 are a beautiful summary here of the strength and the power of God. Look at verse five. God is the creator of the universe. He gives life and breath to everything and everyone. Verse six, God is the one who called the people of Israel. He's the one who will preserve them. His plan for the nation is to be a light for the world. Verse seven, God is on a mission to bring spiritual freedom to those who are blind and trapped to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Verse eight, we find that God is full of glory and it exclusively belongs to him. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And verse nine, God is at work doing something new. He's fulfilling his prophecies. Behold, the former things that have come to pass and the new things I now declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. What is going on here? He's just giving them promise after promise after promise regarding who he is. Again, he's elevating the who question, talking about the servant, but then identifying how is this going to happen? These are biblical promises about who God is and they're meant to be deeply encouraging. This reminds me of one of my favorite moments in the book Pilgrim's Progress, Christian is stuck along with his companion Hopeful in a dungeon within a castle called Doubt. So he's stuck in Doubting Castle and he's terrorized by a giant who lives in the castle of Doubt and that giant's name is Despair. So to set the framework again, we have Christian in a dungeon in Doubting Castle being terrorized by the giant of Despair. And in this beautiful moment, Christian suddenly realizes that in his pocket, he has a key. And he says to Hopeful, what a fool I am to lay here in a stinking dungeon when I could just as easily walk at liberty in my coat next to my heart. I have a key. And that key is called promise. And I am persuaded that it, the key of promise, can unlock any dungeon, any prison cell, anything that holds you captive in Doubting Castle. Within his pocket, he held a key called promise. 
When you understand this, church, it leads you to worship, which is why verses 10 through 17 are a song. It's an invitation for the whole world to sing. Sing to the Lord a new song, verse 10. Sing praise from the ends of the earth, you who go down to the sea and all that fills it. Verses 10 through 14, there's this urgency in God declaring what he is like. A warning in verse 15 of what his deliverance and judgment will be like. I will lay waste mountains and hills and will dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. Verse 16, I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know, in paths that they have not known. I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, rough places into level ground. These are the things I do. I do not forsake them. Isaiah is desperate for the people of God to realize the power of God and to turn from their idols and trusting in anything else except in him. Look at verse 17. They are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our God. So the choice, again, that we see here is who are you going to trust? Who are you gonna trust? All week long, you and I have made decisions about who we trusted very practically, and the question on this Lord's Day is this, who are you going to trust? What we need is a servant from the Lord. What power that will make it good to happen is centered on the very heart of who God is. So the solution to our problems is being careful that we don't spend so much time on the what, the how, the when, and the why at the neglect of who. Can I just remind you who's in charge of your life today, Christian? Can I remind you the expansive power of this God to take care of the challenges that are in your life? And can I also remind you that it is very tempting to direct our attention to things that we think are gonna make us safe, but in fact aren't. And that's why the chapter ends with a rehearsing of what we're like. The chapter ends with a cautionary tone, a cautionary tone that's meant to create humility. After showing us the glorious hope of what the servant of God is like and showing us the hope of God's power, the chapter concludes with a sober summary of what we're like. So here's the thing. The more you understand the glory of God, the more you understand the beauty of Jesus, the more you come to terms with how you're not like him. So the good news is, Christian, the more you grow in grace, the more clearly you know how much you needed God's grace. It doesn't mean that you feel worse about yourself. It means that you realize how deeply broken you were and how much you needed a savior. When you come to Christ, you might realize, I'm a sinner, but the more you grow in grace, you realize, like, no, like hardcore, I'm a big sinner or I'm the biggest sinner that I know. Because I know my sins, I can just guess what yours are. 
And in chapter 42 and verse 20, a summary text about the heart of God's people in this moment. He says, he sees many things, but he does not observe them. His ears are open, are open, but he does not hear. So what's God concerned about? He's concerned about spiritual blindness and spiritual deafness. Look at verse 18. Hear you deaf and look you blind that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? Now he uses that same word servant. He's not in this moment referring to the servant in verses one through five. He's now referring to the servant of the people of Israel. They were supposed to be the Israel that could communicate the glory of God to the world, but they failed and so Jesus comes as the new Israel. In order to rescue people from their failed mission, God sends his own son in order to welcome the world into God's family through the person and work of Jesus, and yet we see the failure of God's people. In fact, they're presently under discipline because of their hard-heartedness, their idolatry, their lack of concern for one another. That's why Assyria came. That's why Babylon invaded, because the people of God were guilty of idolatry and insensitivity to each other. That's why verses 21 through 23 talk about a people being plundered and looted and trapped. God was disciplining them in order to wake them up out of their spiritual delusion, in order to invite them back to himself. He calls them out of their blindness. He calls them out of their deafness. Why is this important? Because when people come to their senses and humble themselves, their only hope is the character and faithfulness of God. Their hope is not in themselves. And the fastest path forward is the realization of who I am in my brokenness and the realization of who God is in his beauty. That renewal comes through repentance. There's no way they'll look for a deliverer if they don't realize how blind and deaf they really are. But once they realize it and if they embrace their brokenness, they can seek renewal because of the character and the faithfulness of their forgiving God. That's why the text calls us to wait for the Lord. Not wait for you. Not wait for an answer. Not wait for a spouse. Not wait for a promotion. Not wait for healing. All those things might be good and the right gifts, but the problem is that we take them and we make our identity so associated with them that before we know it, our sense of what is really valuable is tied up into that idol, and as a result, our hearts begin to drift from God. For some of you, the first step of humility today would be to put your trust in Christ for the very first time. And maybe that the circumstances of your life are such that you're finally awakened to the fact that you are in trouble and you're in trouble because of you. And friend, if that's where you are, I would say, welcome to the party. <laughs> because Christians are a group of people who we celebrate broken, messed up, awful sinner, need a savior. That's what it means to be the church. It means a group of people who know they're royally messed up and without a savior, they would be damned. So why not come to Jesus today? Why not confess Christ as Lord? Why not realize God is holy? Seriously, I'm not holy. 
Jesus saves. And then here's the thing that blows me away. Christ is my life. And for those of you who are Christians, let me just go back to a text that we read earlier. 1 Peter chapter 5. Notice the first two words. Humble yourselves. Therefore, under the mighty hand of God. That humility for you, Christian, looks like you saying to God, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do it. I don't know where to go, I don't know what to do, but here's what I know. You've told me to wait for you, and that's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna humble myself and say to you, I am not gonna wait for me. I'm gonna take all my anxieties, and I'm gonna push them to you and say, I wait for you. After that end, I want to just give you some space at the end of the service to do just that. I want you to bow your heads. In a moment of just quiet reflection, can I ask you, if you're not a Christian, why not invite Jesus to be your savior right now today? Why not say, Jesus, I come to you and I turn from my sins and I want you to be my savior and Lord. And if you're a Christian, just why not right now acknowledge the humility of your uncertainty, the questions like why and what and when and how. Can you just take a moment and take all of those questions and imagine yourself just casting them on Jesus. How we're gonna end this morning is, we'll have elders up here after the service, but we're gonna give you just about 30 seconds or so of quiet meditation in silence. And then when you hear the music play, you can be dismissed. That'll be your benediction today. This is a moment in the busyness of your life and all of the striving just to take a pause and to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God.